Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. Those are the first four verses of Psalm 104, which is the psalm appointed for today, Saturday, July the 2nd, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm John Green. I'm your host. We are continuing our look at the book of Numbers with the continuing the story of Balaam. All in uh, Numbers 24, verses 12 to 25, uh, in the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 22, verses 23 to 40, and in um, Paul's letter to the church at Rome, chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. So remember the story here is, is that Balaam has been called out by Balak, the king of Moab, to come and curse the Israelites who are encamped in the wilderness opposite Moab. And so he, he has come, and, and the Lord met him on the way, uh, revealed himself first to the donkey who saw him, saw the the sword, the the angel with the sword that Balaam didn't see until the Lord opened his eyes. The donkey saw first, and so then he he warned him to speak only the words that God told him to speak, and so he has done so in three different oracles so far. And so now Balaam said to Balak, we, this was the end of yesterday's lesson too, by the way, did I not tell your messengers whom you sent to me, if Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold, I wouldn't be able to go beyond the word of the Lord to do either good or bad on my own of my own will. What the Lord speaks, that will I speak. So I'm only going to say what God tells me to say. I'm not going to say anything on my own. And now behold, I'm going to my people. Come, I'll let you know what this people will do to you in the latter days. Now, Moab was, was certainly not a conquered land. Um, this is not an oracle against Moab. Now, remember who the Moabites were. So after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, remember Lot and his wife and his daughters came out. His wife looked back and was turned into a pillar of salt. And then Lot and his daughters escaped and went into the cave, and, and the daughters there thought, uh-oh, we've got to preserve the human race. And so they got Lot drunk because they didn't think he would acquiesce <laughs> any other way. They got him drunk consecutive nights and, well, had sex with Dad, and one of the daughters is the, the mother of the Moabites. So Lot is the father of the Moabites, which means that it's family with the Jews. Because it, he was Abraham's nephew. So there, there's a family connection between them. And and now, though, what Balaam is going to do is he is going to pronounce against these the, the other countries in the area, the Amalekites and some other people too. But, but the Moabites were never a land that was conquered by the Israelites. The Moabites, uh, in fact, end up in the line of Messiah with Ruth, who is the great-grandmother of David. So the Moabites actually play an important part in the history of Israel and of Christianity. So here now Balaam is going to speak and give a further oracle about the future. And it's a messianic prophecy. And in fact, it's the messianic prophecy that, the, um, that was followed by the Magi, because it speaks of this star that's to come. So he took up his discourse, and he said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eyes opened. Remember, he didn't see the angel until the Lord opened his eyes. So the oracle of the man whose eyes opened, I now see clearly. 
the oracle of him who hears the words of God, because God would take him aside, and he would tell him what to say, put the words in his mouth, and he'd send him out there, and who knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. Now, that stuff right there was in the previous oracle as well. That's how he prefaced everything that he said in that previous oracle is to say, I see clearly now and I hear clearly now. In the words that I'm saying, I'm speaking truth. And I know that it's truth because it comes from God. So it's not based on, you know, signs and other things that I've seen and and, and divination. It's based in seeing and hearing. He said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. In other words, this is stuff that's going to happen in the future. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom, and who is Edom? That's from the line of Esau, the brother of Jacob. So Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also with his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. Now, part of this, then he looked on Amalek, Amalek, and took on up his discourse and said, Amalek was first among the nations, but its end is utter destruction. And that was exactly what God told Saul to do and exactly what Saul, well, refused to do. And so the Amalekites continued to be a thorn in the side of Israel for a long time because Saul wouldn't finish the job that he was given to do. Now, the we can talk about that at some other time whenever we get to the conquest of the Amalekites and when we get to Saul and his failure to do that. But the Amalekites are, are the last, as I said yesterday, of the giant clans, and they're the ones who are the descendants of the Nephilim. There's great evil that comes through the Amalekites, and that's the reason God says they have to be destroyed. It's a spiritual thing that's going on here, and the destruction is of this spiritual line that, that's, that's headed by these demonic beings. Now, I'm not saying the Amalekites were demonic, but there was a demonic being that was over the Amalekites, and they followed that thing. That, that was why they had to be utterly destroyed. This was the, to finish the work of the flood, because the Nephilim, remember, are in, in Genesis 6. The Nephilim are there, and then the flood happens. Well, their spirits are eternal, and so those are spirits. Those are, those are angels who came down and mingled with the, the daughters of men. And they produce these giant clans. And so the Amalekites are the last of the giant clans that we hear about in Scripture. And so that's the reason they are to be utterly destroyed. They represent the greatest evil on earth and, and in the heavenlies as well. So he's, he's prophesying against all of these, and he's prophesying about David in this, but also a, a greater David, ultimately. And, and all of this looks like regular warfare, but it's actually spiritual warfare, because these clans, these these people that are named here are, are the ones who are following after demonic entities who are rulers over those lands. And so when Jesus goes to the land of the Gerasenes, that's a place where the Jews believed that the gates of hell were because of the wickedness of that place. And so Jesus goes there and, and, and does the beginning of the work by healing that the man or delivering him from the demonic possession that he had. And so that's the beginning of the work. And we carry that forward now when we proclaim and bring the kingdom of God. And so he, he looked on the Kenite then and took up his discourse and said, Enduring is your dwelling place, and your nest is set in the rock. Nevertheless, Cain, it's a town, shall be burned when Asher takes you captive. 
And he took up his discourse and said, Alas, who shall live when God sees this? Ships shall come from Katim and shall afflict Asher, A-S-S-U-H-U-R, not Asher, the tribe of Israel, and Eber, and he too shall come to utter destruction. Then Balaam rose and went back to his place, and Balak also went his way. So the work is done in that place. It's, it's, it didn't turn out the way Balak wanted it to. He hears the people of Israel blessed. In the gospel today, <clears throat> Remember yesterday we had the Pharisees and the Herodians come to Jesus and try and entangle him in his words. They were trying to trip him up, and they asked him about taxes. So now, after they've taken their best run at Jesus, now the same day the Sadducees came to him who say there's no resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And that's partially at least what, Moses, what Abraham was doing when he married Sarah. And Sarai at the time, Abram and Sarai would be the better way to say it. But it's also the thing you see with Judah and Tamar in, in the when she tricks him into having sex with her to produce a child because his, his first son, her, her uh, husband died, and then he gave her Onan, and then Onan refused to do that because he didn't want to dilute his own child's inheritance, so he's not going to provide one for his brother. And then he... Um, Judah had refused, essentially, to give uh, his next child, next son, Shelah, to Tamar, and so she has to trick him into doing the righteous thing. So that's what they're, they're appealing to, is that kind of leveret marriage. So now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second, and the third, and down to the seventh. After them, the woman died in the resurrection. She didn't have any children. Therefore, of the seven, whose wife shall be? be? For they all had her. Now, these are the kinds of questions that, that the Talmud, for instance, would, would provide certain kinds of answers for in real life, but not to do with the resurrection. They, they would define the terms around which a man had to marry his brother's wife in, in these situations or could not for one reason or another. If he were married, for instance, to this woman's sister, he couldn't take her as a wife, even though the law said that that he had to do that. Nope, there was a prior law and a more important law about not being with sisters that applied there. And so so this is a, a legitimate question, except it's about the resurrection, which they don't even believe in. And they're, and they're chuckleheads. And they're coming forward and they're trying to, to make fun of the resurrection and, and try and make make it somehow an analog for this life. And Jesus answered them, you're wrong <laughs> because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You, you don't know anything at all. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. I mean, you have denied the power of God because you deny the resurrection. So the power of God, they didn't believe God was able to resurrect someone from the dead. So that's why they denied the resurrection. They just thought it was a silly idea. So what would that mean then? That means that they would, they would everything for them was, was in this life. So Jesus says, you're wrong because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. For the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like angels in heaven. And what he's not saying is that you become an angel. What he's saying is you're like angels in the sense that there's nothing like marriage there. That's the reason angels came down to earth because of the beauty of the daughters of men, because they don't get married in their kind. That thing doesn't pass into the next life. It's, it's different. There's something greater even. 
He says, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. And when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. This doesn't seem like a great test, to be honest with you. It doesn't seem like a very difficult test to me. I don't understand it too well. Um, and and it, it's, they said, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Well, what would be the greatest commandment in the law? It would be the first one, right? I mean, that, that's the reason when we look at the, the Constitution, we also have a Bill of Rights. Well, the Bill of Rights flows logically in the eyes of those who wrote it from the Constitution itself. And so the Bill of Rights are appended to it because it talks about rights in a generic way, and then it delineates those rights. So, it, it, but, it, but those rights are, are the ones that they felt necessary to delineate. The ones most likely to be transgressed upon had to be delineated in that way. So, the, but they come from the pre, the, 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 the whole thing flows as one document. One of them is just, you know, um, more detailed than the other to make sure that certain rights aren't abridged. We have a bill of rights. So in, in, the constitution of the people, what would be the most important commandment? It would be the first one, right? Everything else flows from that. Because it begins with, he's the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You'll have no other gods before me. And so then that gets defined later in Deuteronomy as loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. So that is important. So the first thing the, about the constitution of the nation is the covenant between God and his people. It defines who is king. So God's king. So the first commandment has to be love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. That's got to be the first commandment because it's the first principle that organized the people, that God's king. He delivered them out of slavery out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, they can't have any other gods before him. So he has to be the primary thing. So, and then he says, follows quickly with, and second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's a great summary of everything because what it says is that, that you love the Lord your God with all your soul and all your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Well, why, why is that? Well, because your neighbor, you and your neighbor, are created in the image of God. So love God and love his image. And then he says, don't make images, by the way. Don't make any images. I've already done that. When you see one another, you're looking at an image of God. And so, to, so love God, love his image. It's as simple as that. And he says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And if you love your neighbor, you won't murder him, you won't commit adultery with him, you won't steal from him, you won't lie about him, and, and well, maybe you won't covet the things that he has. You might. But covetous leads to something else. That's the reason you don't covet. So be satisfied with what you've been given is what coveting is essentially. The, the prohibition on coveting means be satisfied with what you have. Don't be satisfied with that. Don't don't keep up with the Joneses by taking things from the Joneses and all that. So it, it, it comes down to, to those things. And, and so I don't see why that's a very difficult test. But the, the, the lawyer in another gospel is quite impressed by that. It, one of the ways that it can be a test is to say, all right, 
one of the things that rabbis love to do is they love to take complex things and boil them down into very simple aphorisms. And so when Jesus does this, he, he, he sort of brings the law down to, to its basics. And, and so it's well done in a sense that, wow, that, that encapsulates everything in just a very few words. And so from a rabbinic perspective, it, it's, it's so well done that, that it's impressive. But it, why anybody would think it was a test to find out what was the greatest commandment, I just don't know. <clears throat> and maybe it just seems simple to me because, well, I'm so familiar with it. In the letter to the Romans, Paul is, is talking about, the, remember yesterday he ended up with, we have to suffer with him if we're going to enjoy the fruits of, of things. And, and all it's saying is, is that you're going to suffer if you follow Jesus, which is exactly what Jesus said. That, that I'm, not, I'm not telling you this is going to be easy for you and go well for you and that everybody's going to love you. No, I'm telling you it's going to be hard. You're going to be persecuted for it. So persecution for the truth is something that we shouldn't worry about. You know, it hurts sometimes, and, and you lose friends over it, and that becomes, you know, painful. But at the same time, God's going to give you more friends. Don't worry about that. So anyway, he says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is be to be revealed to us. And so that's the difference between Paul and a Sadducee. A Sadducee doesn't see any future glory. They only see the present. They only see this life. And don't be like a Sadducee. That's the best thing I can tell you. <clears throat> for the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. The creation, the created order he's talking about here. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So when was the, when was the creation subjected to futility? In Genesis 3, because it was no longer going to yield its increase. Because now it's only by the sweat of your brow that you're going to get. The creation wants to cooperate with us. That was the intention all along, was that all of creation, the animal kingdom, the, the, the plant kingdom, the earth itself, would cooperate with our efforts, and it would be fruitful, and it would be a wonderful partnership. But now we have to have all these chemicals and everything else in order to make things happen. And so he said the, the, the creation has been subjected to futility because of man's sin, and that's what he means. There was a curse on the ground. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The earth wants to cooperate with us. The earth wants us to be the children of God, in order that it can reach its full potential as well. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that's not, that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? And that's the Sadducees vision of things, right? That my only hope is in the things that I can see. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience, because we wait for it with faith, and we wait for it with belief. So who we are is not who we will be. So we wait in hope, with joy, to become who we are intended to be, and we cooperate with His Spirit in us in order to see that become a reality.